Hello and welcome to Resolutions, the new podcast about dispute resolution and prevention. For those of you who are listening for the first time, this podcast is a new project created by the ABA section of Dispute Resolution, where one of three hosts have a conversation with members of the Dispute Resolution section about topics of interest in the field. I'm one of your hosts, Lucy Greenwood, and I'm an international arbitration practitioner currently based in London, but previously from Houston, Texas. I'm currently honoured to be the co-chair of the International Committee of the ABA section on dispute resolution. This week in resolutions, we're talking with Ava Barasso, an arbitration and litigation sole practitioner in sunny Miami. By way of a brief introduction to Ava, Ava has 25 years of experience in the field and she acts both as advocate and arbitrator. She's a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators, a panel member at ICDR and the AAA Complex Commercial Panel, and she's also a registered ICC member. Before establishing her firm in 2015, she was a partner with a prominent international litigation and arbitration boutique for nearly a decade. So, Ava, good morning and welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Lucy. I'm thrilled to be joining you on this very interesting uh, venue. Thank you, Ava. Let's talk a little bit uh, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the podcast. Let's talk about a bit more about your background because I've given a few highlights there, but it's an interesting background to move from a from a um, litigation and arbitration boutique to a sole practitioner, which as I know, throws up lots of different challenges. So so tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Well, I think you hit on really the high points. Um, basically, my background is, you know, over 25 years in commercial litigation and moving into, I would say, about 15 years ago, um, partnership in an international litigation and arbitration boutique. Um, at that time, I really started out focusing on international litigation and then moved very naturally into international arbitration, where I practiced, I would say, almost exclusively for about seven years, um, you know, leading various cases that were international arbitrations as counsel. So for me, really, the next logical progression was to move to, um, you know, also sitting as an arbitrator. And I went out on my own about four years ago and have been um, acting as advocate and arbitrator, really focused on international commercial disputes, um, and would say that for me, really, uh, one of the critical things in developing my practice has been in that, you know, 25-year-plus time period, having really top-notch mentors and colleagues that I have had, you know, the good fortune to work with along the way. So that's sort of a snapshot as to how I ended up uh, in the in the position that I'm currently in. And uh, do you find it um, lonely being on your own as a sole practitioner? What 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 are the best things and the worst things about it? You mentioned mentors and colleagues. Obviously, that's that's hard to continue when you're when you're on your own. True. Although I do, you know, have a um, a space with um, uh, with a law firm, um, so I, you know, basically share space with the law firm. So I have some of that. But really, the last point that I was um, touching on is probably the the one of the one of the benefits which is 
being able to select and include various practices, you know, the advocacy and sitting as arbitrator. I think you can do that with some firms, but typically those um, situations are, you know, perhaps less flexible. So the ability to apportion my practice is obviously a very attractive element of being uh, a sole practitioner. So for me, it's still, you know, fairly new, having worked with law firms for the bulk of my career. What I would say is the downside is actually, if you want to look at it, you know, alternatively an upside, but um, it's this idea of wearing all the hats. So as a partner in a law firm, obviously there were administrative roles and responsibilities that um, were required, and I had areas of firm management that I was responsible for, as my partners all did. So um, those things as a solo, obviously all of those uh, various issues come under your purview. So there's the technical, administrative, financial, et cetera, et cetera. And then you also have, obviously, the, the practice, which is, you know, the paramount issue. So balancing that, I think, can be challenging. Um, and it's, it's really a, you know, it's a development. It's a, a new area that is, um, that is really, it has been of interest, I would say, at least um, for me. And absolutely, and I mean everything you say is is chiming very much with me um, over here on the side of the pond. Sure, I mean no I, doubt. yeah, I found it to be a very welcoming, um, inclusive community, uh, both here in in England and and when I was practicing in Texas. And I know that Miami is is as you say, a, a, it's a thriving community. Um, how, how do you find that aspect of things in terms of access to? as you say, new developments, conferences, those kind of things? Well, as you as you hit on, Miami is, you know, a, a hot area for this. And, um, you know, there are very con various conferences throughout the year. We actually just had in February the international law section of the Florida Bar put on its annual conference, which is like a one-day conference, basically three parallel tracks. And the international arbitration track was um, was sponsored and, and headed by the ICDR. So that was a very, uh, very beneficial program. And then, of course, you have the ICC that comes every year at the end of the year. I think it's their largest conference um, annually, uh, which brings, you know, a lot of Latin American uh, practitioners and arbitrators to Miami. So Miami definitely has, you know, those are just a couple of the things. There are, you know, abundant resources and um, conferences and, you know, abilities to network with other people here in Miami, as I'm sure you find, you know, in, in London as well. Absolutely, and everything you list is such a key to developing a, an active practice, particularly as a sole practitioner. Before we move on to uh, your presentation at the Spring Conference, are there any tips that you would give to people trying to follow in your footsteps, Ava? As you know, what, what you're describing is a, is a very fascinating and, and varied practice. Um, can you can you give any any sort of tips or guidance to perhaps our more our younger listeners? Sure. What I would say is um, I think a degree of flexibility. I think I ended up in the sort of international litigation arbitration world and um, an arbitrator um, uh, space a little bit differently probably than most people have. 
I think if you're interested in pursuing an international practice, either as counsel or arbitrator, really the critical thing is having substantial hands-on experience with a law firm, um, whether that's a specialized boutique or a larger firm. I think uh, particularly for young practitioners, young lawyers, the ability to learn from mentors, um, that is an unmatched experience. And for me personally, it was absolutely um, critical in my development as a lawyer. So I do think that there is uh, an abundance of um, opportunities. Maybe I'm noticing it more, but I feel like there have been more and more opportunities for young practitioners to really develop their craft. I've seen um, opportunities for oral and written advocacy. For example, the Young Arbitration Review out of Portugal is really focused on uh, opportunities for young uh, arbitration practitioners or, um, you know, future arbitrators to have an ability or an opportunity to get published on a variety of international arbitration issues. Uh, they have there are many leadership groups that I'm seeing almost every you know day or at least every week dealing with um, a focus on young arbitrators. For example, the Chartered Institute, which I know we are both members of, has a young arbitrators group. Arbitral Women has a young practitioners group. There's the Young ICA. There's actually a workshop I just saw on written and oral advocacy coming up in early April in Copenhagen. So I think there are uh, abundance of opportunities for young practitioners um, to take advantage of if they're interested in working in this space. I completely agree. And as I mean, as you highlight, networking in this space is, is absolutely key, and all these groups give a great platform for that. Well, let's turn to the... ABA um, Spring Conference that we're all um, looking forward to with great anticipation. This is going to take place in April um, at the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Minneapolis, and it's called Shining the Light on the Parties in Dispute Resolution, and there's um, a fantastic program available um, for all sorts of different interests. Um, in you will obviously be there because you're presenting there, but are there any other highlights of the spring conference that you're particularly looking forward to attending? Well, I think the conference has really a variety of programming on a lot of topical issues. There's a mix of ADR topics um, covering arbitration, mediation, ODR. There's also a variety of contexts um, of the particular presentations. I, I've seen uh, that there are presentations with respect to construction, healthcare, technology, and family law um, issues, as well as diversity program, which I know is an important to focus um, for you as well. Uh, the procedural and substantive program, I would say, is really well developed. I see that there is a focus on um, looking at things from, from the client perspective, I think that the Global Pound Conference that happened, I would say maybe it's a couple of years ago now, the big takeaway I think from that conference was the, um, the key for the parties or the users was efficiency of the process. So I have seen some program, some of the programming at the ABA really focusing on programs designed to um, increase client satisfaction with the process. And in addition, of course, there are tons of social functions. I think the closing reception looks especially, um, you know, fantastic uh, at the Minneapolis Art Institute, which is 
um, you know, I'm actually quite looking forward to that. Absolutely. We, we all know it's good to get the balance right between the socialising <laughs> and, and, and the yeah. educating and learning. And you're going to be talking on how to obtain and enforce emergency and interim relief in, in one of the panels, um, which is which is a fascinating topic, um, to be sure. It's also, I would say, um, slightly unusual in that, you know, the number of emergency cases, as you will well know, has, has increased in recent years, but is still not a large volume of cases. What was it that particularly piqued your interest in presenting on this topic? Sure. I think this is a topic that has really been at the forefront, um, I would say, for the past 10 to 15 years. Um, the emergency arbitration and the interim arbitration or interim measures um, rules um, that, that really came into into play during that time period. And I believe the ICDR was the first to adopt the opt-out emergency rules, which would have been in 2006, I believe. So as those things are now making their way through, you know, you're having court decisions that are addressing application of those various uh, procedures. So the jurisprudence has been developing there. So for me, um, there is, you know, a strong interest, obviously, of the parties in getting the relief and the flexibility of arbitration to obtain those ends and being able to meet the needs of the users, um, and particularly the institutions, I think, have done a very good job of evolving to address those needs. And I think that these two areas the emergency and the interim measures are, are, you know, perfect indicators of that. So these um, steps can be very useful under a variety of circumstances. You may be able to use them to, you know, preserve assets as well as obtain information or evidence or just to maintain the status quo or obtain some type of security. So there's a variety of um uh, ends that can be, you know, met through these various procedures. I think given the party's paramount interest and efficiency of the process, you may find that um, these particular procedures um, actually will increase over time because it may be more expedient um, to obtain that type of relief, which can then provide, under certain circumstances, a shortcut to proceedings um, you know, continuing through truthful resolution. And do you see uh, this very much as uh, you know, cutting out having to go to the courts? Because I completely agree with you that arbitral institutions have really risen to the challenge, as you say, since uh, the ICDR really was the first, but then others have followed um, in relation to emergency proceedings. But has it had the knock-on effect of, of stopping emergency applications to courts, or are people trying to work these issues in parallel? What, what's, your, what's your sense? Well, I actually just addressed, um, I, I wrote an article for the YAR, Young Arbitration Review on this um, last fall, looking at it from a U.S. court perspective and how U.S. courts have dealt with um, granting um, really interim measures. And basically, you can have a situation where um, you, you can have situations where you still need to go to court, and you can have situations where you you um, can bring 
you know, the request for relief before a tribunal, either prior to institution or constitution of a panel or afterwards. Um, so I think that you do see that um, from a U.S. court perspective, courts are very deferential to arbitration in the U.S. If the court finds that there is a process underway in arbitration, they're less likely to rule on the matter. They're more likely to stay those issues pending determination by the tribunal, particularly in circumstances where the court finds that the tribunal is capable of providing the relief. Now, there may be circumstances where you still need to go to court. There may be unique um, circumstances where you need relief against a third party that may be beyond the reach of the arbitral um, process. Um, you may have, you know, particularly some particular urgency. Um, and obviously, if you have an ex parte proceeding, that would be something that you would pursue in court. So there are different, you know, sort of uh, aspects of relief um, depending on the procedures, but most of the rules, I know the um, ICDR rules and the AAA rules both provide that, you know, pr proceeding through the arbitration, uh, that uh, the parties are not precluded from going to court. So really that avenue is open. And again, I think this speaks to the flexibility of the arbitration process. Um, but from the U.S. court perspective, they are very deferential to arbitration if, if they think that there is an opportunity um, and that the panel can actually provide the relief that's requested. I think they are, are more deferential to the, to the arbitrators under those types of circumstances. And that's interesting. You say uh, deferential. I, I would completely agree with that. Is it your sense that there's also an improved understanding generally from the courts as to um, these types of sort of, I would say, expanded roles that the tribunals are now playing? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think that the um, you know the U.S. is is a very pro arbitration um, uh, venue in any event. But as these as these rules and procedures have developed, um, there has been a high degree of um, deference by U.S. courts in favor of the arbitration process. So I think that you will find some pushback by U.S. courts, and they will decline to enter relief in a case, um, typically staying the case, if they find that the arbitrator has the authority to issue the relief and it would be viable under the particular circumstances presented. And just going back um, to interim relief being granted by the tribunal, so back within the realms of the arbitration itself, do you think that there is a difference in approach between domestic arbitration proceedings and, and more internationally flavored arbitration proceedings? Um, it's difficult to say. I think that if you if you look at the commercial AAA rules, for example, they provide for inter, interim measures as well as emergency uh, relief, as the ICDR rules do. Um, interim measures can be granted by uh, in arbitration when it's deemed necessary, and obviously you see it in circumstances of injunctive relief or conservation and disposition with respect to perishable goods. Um, there's an opportunity to subject, uh, to require security from a party. 
Um, and again, as I said, it's not incompatible with um, proceeding with courts. So I don't see a, a great difference, really, to answer your question with respect to uh, proceeding for interim interim relief between the commercial or the domestic and the international. But again, this is a you know it's a developing a developing area. But with respect to the rules and the procedures in place, no. And, and that was certainly my sense, David, but I just wanted to get your take on it from, from the U.S. side. Uh, how much time, uh, if at all, do you have to uh, spend sort of educating clients about, about the availability, I would say, particularly of emergency relief? Because as you say, I mean, that was the first uh, change was back in 2006, which um, it's a while ago now, but I guess not that long in the greater scheme of things. Um, do, you, do you find you, you know, clients are generally aware of, of this ability to constitute an emergency tribunal in, in, within three days or whatever it is in the ITDR? Well, I think obviously every circumstance is unique and clients have a varying degree of knowledge with respect to the process. The ability to obtain emergency relief may or may not be warranted under the particular circumstances of, of your case. So obviously I do think that there is, you know, still um, a degree of uh, education that's required with respect to that, but the more, um, the more frequent users of arbitration, let's say, are, are pretty well um, versed in that. I can give you a few statistics um, if you're interested with respect to you know, the number of emergency arbitrations that have taken place from the ICDR, and it, it would be more or less in the 13 years that the, the rules have been in place or from 2006, and I, and I agree with you that this is only, you know, going to increase in, in numbers on an annual basis uh, going forward. At least I think that's the most likely scenario, but the there have been in that amount of time about 90 applications for emergency measures that have been filed with the ICDR and about 40 to 45 percent of those were either partially or f fully granted. About 20 percent of those were denied, 15 percent more or less the parties resolved their issues and about 13 percent the, um, the applications were withdrawn. So it gives you a sense of, of, you know, kind of where we are at this beginning stage. And I think that the next, you know, 10 to 15 years, those numbers are, are likely to increase because there are, you know, quite a few benefits um, if it applies to your particular case. Absolutely. And that, that, those, those numbers are fascinating. They're actually more than I had have, I have appreciated, uh, 90, 90 cases. Well, Ava, that's pretty much all we have uh, time for today. I do want to thank you very much for your time and for giving us that uh, very brief highlight into your presentation in Minneapolis next um, month. So thank you, Ava. For our listeners, thank you all for joining us uh, this afternoon on the podcast. And we are looking forward to seeing lots of you at the Spring Conference. Apparently, you can register online at the ABA website at the event tab. So please do go like ahead and do. Ava, go ahead. 
I did just want to, you know, take a quick second to say, you know, many thanks to the ABA dispute resolution section for developing what I think is an interesting format, and to, to you, Lucy, for this opportunity to chat. It's always a, a true pleasure, and I really, uh, I really enjoyed doing it. So thank you. Wonderful, Ava, and thank you, as I say, thank you for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. And to everyone, until the next installment of Resolutions, goodbye.